Well, good morning and welcome to uh, the live stream of Calvary Chapel of El Paso. And uh, I do thank each and every one of you that is uh, watching and uh, worshiping along with us and praying and praising our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to mention to you, of course, as I, I have the last couple of times that we've done this, that uh, we really miss each and every one of you that is uh, a member of this assembly and this congregation of believers. We are certainly desiring for that day to come soon, that we can once again fellowship with you and express the love of Christ to you directly and see you face to face. That is certainly our desire. And all the more in that uh, even just thinking this past week and realizing that uh, next next Sunday is uh, Resurrection Sunday and we're going to be rejoicing in that great work of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who, who died on our behalf, died for our sins, took our sins upon himself and upon that cross and shed his blood for the forgiveness and the remission of our sins. And three days later, rose again from the dead. This is our encouragement as believers. And to realize that the resurrection is something that we rejoice in every day. That is our great hope. The blessed hope of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who has risen from the dead, coming again, and taking us home as he has promised. So we are indeed looking for the appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ with the understanding, of course, that he has accomplished already for us what we needed. The Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. This morning I want to pose some questions to you as we begin a series of studies that we will continue on as, as long as the Lord would have us from the book of Ecclesiastes. Excuse me. And I believe that the greater question to ask today is will we ever get back to normal? We watch the TV, we watch and listen to uh, the president's task force uh, uh, describing on a daily basis what is happening with the coronavirus uh, in our country and in in cities and states uh, uh, around our our country, Uh, not to mention, of course, what is is taking place uh, globally, but... uh, that's one question I think is, uh, is on the minds of many. We can actually hear a lot of people talking about just wanting to get back to some normalcy or, or normality. And, and uh, some people like I was listening to on, on uh, uh, sports radio the other day that they were saying, oh yeah, we're, we're going to get back. We're going to be playing football. We're going to be in big stadiums and people are going to crowd the stadiums. You know, and have, just get back to, back to normal. I heard the governor of of New York City the other day in one of his daily interviews uh, with the press that that he said something I don't ever much agree with that particular governor of New York, but he he happened to say, we're not not getting back to normal. And I thought about that, thought about that statement he made. Will we ever get back to normal? Quite possibly, the the, the best question that we, we, we really need to ask is not so much Will we ever get back to normal? The question is, what was normal? What was normal for us? As believers in Jesus Christ, we need to understand this. Because for years, the Lord has has been warning us through his word that days and times were were coming that would be difficult. They're going to be dangerous. They're going to be perilous times. In other words, filled with peril. Filled with terror. 
And what do we have happening today? We have people that are fearing what they can see. For example, wars and disasters such as earthquakes, tornadoes, and hurricanes. These things, you know, they're fearing because they can see them. But they're now fearing what they cannot see. They're fearing a virus that that has turned the world upside down. And perhaps this coronavirus pandemic is, is being used of the Lord to awaken the church, to awaken the body of Christ, to refine us. I truly believe there's a lot of refining going on in us today through the Lord because of this pandemic, refining us that we, we might, as believers in Jesus Christ, be attuned more to the things of God. Refining us to be attuned more to those things of God than to all the vain things in life that, that had to, that had become normal for us. Maybe the one thing that we need to understand is maybe it's good that we're not going to return to that normal. There has to be a new normal. The new normal being that we are going to love the things of God, love God Himself, love Jesus Christ, love the, the presence and power of the Holy Spirit more than we ever have. Because we are no longer doing what we consider to be normal. Maybe it was normal for the world and our our part in the world. But there are are truly things, I don't know, maybe you can agree with me, but there are some things today that I'm kind of glad I'm not doing, that I was doing before all of this took place. Things we took for granted. And now we spend more time in, in the Word of God, I hope. We spend more time in the Word of God. We spend more time praying. We spend more time with our families doing those things together. Trusting in the Lord. That should become normal for us. That should have always been the norm for the believer in Jesus Christ. I've asked myself these questions this week. Is Christ my all in all? And I would ask us to ask that question to the church. Is Christ our all? In all. I've also asked the question, what fellowship hath light with darkness? I was reminded of the statement of John in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, where the apostle writes, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. See, this is such a good time for us as believers to examine ourselves, to see that we are in the faith. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, think about this. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world. And look how he describes what's in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh the lust, and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. That might be the norm for the world, but it isn't to be the norm for the believer in Jesus Christ. And John goes on and says, and the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Sound words for us to take as we now move into our study of the book of Ecclesiastes. I've entitled this message, Without Christ, All is Vanity. I think that word all, as as small as it is, is a major word in, in our study today. We'll hear it a few times. But I hear it time and time again in my own heart where I've asked, is Christ my all in all? And so we look at the first two verses of this book, Ecclesiastes. Written by Solomon, the son of David, who was now king in Israel. In, in Israel. He says, the words of the preacher the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, 
Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Solomon begins by taking us directly to the major problem of life under heaven, on this earth. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. When was the last time that you viewed your life as a daily gift from God? And when was the last time that you woke up and and, and immediately just thanked the Lord for the life that he gave you? Oftentimes, even we as believers in Jesus Christ take for granted what we've received from the Lord. Seeking to look at life and things in life from our own narrow and finite perspective without ever considering for a moment the way God would view or approach it. We do take some things for granted. We wake up in the morning, you know, when we were kind of living in that normal life. We'd wake up in the morning, we get up, uh, we would probably say our prayers and do everything that we do to get ready, go to work, live, breathe, have, <laughs> have lunch, have supper, come back home and, and uh, carry on with our day. A lot of times we took for granted that our life was a gift from God. I'm wondering how many of us today, because of what is going on in the world, we're looking more at that very issue of thanking God, wow, for this life that I have, for having a new life, for for having awakened from the night's sleep and now having breath and life to carry on. And to see what it is that the Lord has in store for us today. Because today matters. The whole day will matter for us. But we've oftentimes taken our own perspective rather than his. So left to our own perspective in viewing life. We may end up at times being quite skeptical. And full of despair. I mean, how much more those who are without God and Christ in this world? So think about that. If if it can happen to us as believers, or professing believers even, how much more those who are without God and Christ in this world see what's happening today as being so full of, of despair and despondency. I once read a a quote from the actor-director Woody Allen, who I believe is a self-proclaimed or self-labeled Jewish atheist, who said something that I think he may may have wanted to be funny about, but, but think about the reality of this for a moment. This is what he said. He said, more than any other time in history, mankind faces a crossroads. One path leads to despair and utter hopelessness, the other to total extinction. Let us pray we have the wisdom to choose correctly. Well, that could be funny except for one thing. That's a pretty despondent, hopeless, and skeptical attitude. One path leading to despair and hopelessness, another one leading to total extinction. Choose wisely. Do people have that kind of attitude today with what's going on? In 1835, a man visited a doctor in Florence, Italy. He was filled with anxiety and exhausted from lack of sleep. He couldn't eat and he avoided his friends. The doctor examined him and found that he was in prime physical condition. Concluding that his patient needed to have a good time, the physician told him about a circus in town and its star performer, a clown named Grimaldi. Night after night, he had the people rolling in the aisles. 
You must go and see him, the doctor advised. Grimaldi is the world's funniest clown. He'll make you laugh and cure your sadness. No, replied the despairing man, he can't help me. You see, I am Grimaldi. Is that how some people are living today? The question may then be asked, is life really worth living? Solomon, the son of David and king of Israel, had great opportunities throughout his life to give testimony to the wondrous blessings bestowed upon him from the Lord. Shortly after becoming king of Israel, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and he said to him, ask, what shall I give you? Now stop and think about God asking one person directly, ask, what shall I give you? I mean, what would come to your mind if God asked this question to you directly? Ask, what shall I give you? Well, we're told what Solomon responded with in 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. After God has asked him this question, Solomon said to the Lord, Thou hast showed unto thy servant David, my father, great mercy, according as he walked before thee in truth and in righteousness and in uprightness of heart with thee. And thou hast kept for him this great kindness that thou hast given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. And now, O Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant king instead of David my father. And I am but a little child. I know not how to go out or come in. And thy servant is in the midst of thy people which thou hast chosen, a great people that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge the pe- thy people, that I may discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this thy so great a people? Solomon asked God for wisdom. And the Lord not only granted him what he asked for, The Lord granted Solomon wisdom, but he granted him those things which he had not asked for. He didn't ask for riches and honor, yet God gave him riches and God gave him honor. He was not only the wisest man to ever live, but arguably he was the wealthiest man. But after acquiring such great wealth, And gathering for himself many things which he, as king of Israel, was not permitted to have. Like horses and chariots and multiplied wives and concubines. Solomon's testimony went from, and Solomon loved the Lord, as it says in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 3. And Solomon loved the Lord. It went from that to 1 Kings 11, verse 6. And Solomon did evil. In the sight of the Lord. And went not fully after the Lord as did David his father. And Solomon loved the Lord. Too. And Solomon did evil. In the sight of the Lord. For how many professing believers had that become? A testimony. How quickly we can lose sight of the blessings of God by a changed perspective. Which means that Solomon himself went from that perspective of seeing things from God's point of view to his own again because of what he had. And you might have to consider that God gave him wisdom and riches and honor And the riches and honor became the test of that wisdom. We always have to be checked. Our hearts always have to be checked as to the things that God 
has blessed us with? Will we use them for his glory, for his honor, for his praise? Or will we somehow take credit for some things where credit never belongs, which is to us? Toward the end of his life, and this particular book, the book of Ecclesiastes, reflects this. But toward the end of his life, Solomon may have asked this question countless times. The question is, is life really worth living? Is life really worth living? And so again, this book is his testimony of coming to grips with that very question. And coming to the conclusion that the best thing to do is to enjoy the blessings of God today. To fear God today and to keep his word every day. And seeing life from God's perspective will will give us a greater assurance for the present. And it will give us hope for for the future. One of my favorite, favorite songs or hymns in the church is great is thy faithfulness. And a line from that particular hymn is always the one that stands out for me. Where it says, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. That can truly be and should be the life of every believer, of every Christian. Knowing that we have strength for each and every day. Why? Because God is a God who gives us great mercies every day. His mercies are new every morning, it says in the book of Lamentations. God's mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The very foundation for the title of that great hymn. His mercies are new every morning. His compassions never fail. Great is thy faithfulness. Every day he gives us strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. We have that hope. That hope is our blessed hope. Our blessed hope is the Lord Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior, who has promised to come, who has promised to return, who has promised to gather us together, who has promised to snatch us out of this this world so that where where he is, there we will be with him. Strength for today. Bright hope for tomorrow. When Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 has encouraged the church of the coming of Jesus Christ and the rapture for the church, he says, comfort one another with these words. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. So how we will study this book, this book of Ecclesiastes, which is considered to be one of the most difficult in the Bible to understand, we're going to study this book prayerfully. We're going to study this book faithfully. We're going to study this book with humility and in diligence and with diligence. So we will study Ecclesiastes with prayer, faith, humility, and diligence. It has been said, we expect to find some difficulties in a revelation from a being like God to such a creature as man. We even rejoice in these difficulties. They are the occasion of our growth in grace. They exercise our humility. They are like the leaves of flowers of which the crown of faith is woven. They remind us of our own weakness and ignorance and of Christ's power and wisdom. They send us to him and the gospel. And I pray that our study of the book of Ecclesiastes will do just that each and every day through each and every word, 
that they will send us to Jesus and to his gospel, his good news. We begin by looking at verse 1 of Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and it says the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. The title of the book Ecclesiastes actually comes from the Greek word ekklesia, or ekklesia. And it means one who gathers and speaks to an assembly. The word ekklesia in the New Testament actually is translated as church or assembly. Through the Latin and especially the Spanish, we realize that the word iglesia comes right almost directly out of the word ekklesia. But now in the Hebrew scriptures, the Hebrew title is kochelet, which means the assembler of people and one who speaks publicly in an assembly. But it is also the Hebrew word for the title of the presenter and author of this book. The preacher. So as he begins, and as he says the words of the preacher, he says the words of the kochelet. The words of the one who assembles people to speak to them. And for us to know more specifically who he is, Solomon adds, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. Well, let's deal with each phrase. Let's look at first the words of the preacher, because these are no common words. And we have to understand that as Solomon is sharing these and and proclaiming these words and giving them to the assembly that is to hear it and to listen to them, we could say, wow, he's, he's really opening up his heart about himself. But God is giving him the inspiration to do so. These are no common words. For them to be in the canon of Scripture, for the book of Ecclesiastes to be where it is today, in the writings, in fact, the poetry of the Hebrew Scriptures, lets us know that they are of divine origin. And this is one way of the Lord giving us some understanding of the humanity of the people who are writing the Scriptures. Through these people who are just like you and me, Stained with sin from birth. Yet because of the reality of the relationship that we now have with Jesus Christ and the reality that the prophets and the apostles had with God, God now uses man so that we can understand what we're going through in life. So these words are divine. And they come from the very mouth of God. And there's a need for us to trust the words of the Lord implicitly and without question and doubt. Solomon would encourage this trust in one of his most powerful statements in the book of Proverbs. Where he writes to his own son in Proverbs 3 verses 5 and 6. He says, trust in the Lord with all thine heart. There's that word all. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. And lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways, acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. I find that that is the way that we need to be approaching this whole coronavirus pandemic today. As believers in Jesus Christ. That we are to trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Not with half of our heart, or some of our heart, or most of our heart. All of our heart. Not leaning on our, under, our own understanding in what's going on. And then we are to, in all ways, acknowledge him. In all thy ways, in every way that we are and what we do and what we are to be doing in this life through this situation. We acknowledge him. We don't acknowledge ourselves. We acknowledge him. And when we do so, he shall direct thy paths. These are great words for us today. To trust the words of God. 
To trust the pure words of God, which, by the way, the psalmist says in Psalm 12, verses 6 and 7, that these are what the words of God are. They are pure words. The words of the Lord are pure words. From Genesis to Revelation, they are pure. I don't know where people get the under, or the idea that somehow, down through the ages, the word of God has been, uh, you know, messed with. And that they don't actually give us all the, the truth that we, that we need. Oh, and then there are those who would say, well, of course, you know, the only words that we can, we can trust are, are the original, the original writings, you know. Well, who has those? They're gone. They're, they're not existing anymore. We have the true word from Genesis to Revelation. And we can believe every word of the scriptures. The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. The perfection of the purity of God's word. Why would God give us his word and then say, well, but, you know, later on in the you know, later generations, you know, it's going to be not too well understood. So there are going to be some doubts because there are going to be new translations and some of those translations don't even agree with themselves. <sighs> what a struggle that is for us. The word of God is not about doubt. It's about faith. It's about trust. We've got to trust God's word. And then verse 7 of Psalm 12 says, Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. That is what God has done. He has preserved his words. And if you will, for this generation, we have to believe God's word. And we can. Paul in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17 says, All Scripture. Now remember when he writes this, we still don't have the, full, uh, the fullness of the canon of the New Testament. He has really the Word of God, the, the Hebrew Scriptures, before him. And he says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Ecclesiastes is included in that. Given by inspiration of God. So the Word is pure. It is indeed preserved, and it is indeed inspired for us, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. We will see through the book of Ecclesiastes that all of those points will be covered. Doctrine, and reproof, and correction, and instruction in righteousness. For what reason? Verse 17, that the man of God may be perfect, which means complete, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished, Unto all good works. Nothing is missing when we have the fullness of the word of God. So that we can live it out fully and fulfill the ministry that God has given to each and every one of us. That is the power then of God's word. So the phrase, the words of the preacher, is not just a colloquial thought. He is saying the words of the preacher are the words given to him by God. And so the preacher being Solomon himself expresses that this office of instructing his people is of greater value than that of being king in Jerusalem. Because that's what he starts with, the words of the preacher. He could have even started with his names, Solomon, king in Jerusalem, the son of David, and the words of the preacher. No, he begins with the words. The words given to the one who gathers the assembly to hear the words of God. After having experienced such great despair for his failures and his falls, Solomon devoted himself to repair the dishonor to God from his evil example. We'll see that as we go throughout this book of Ecclesiastes. But I want you to consider what Solomon's own father, David, wrote after his own great fall. Psalm 51, verses 10 through 13, where David says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. 
and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. How the enemy works to get us to see ourselves as such great sinners that we could never be effectively used by God again. What a lie that is. Maybe we should respond to the enemy when he says, what a great sinner you are. And you can say, yes, I am a great sinner. But I have a great Savior. And that Savior sees me as special and precious. That he gave me everlasting life. So I want to fulfill the ministry God has given to me. To serve him. And to honor him. David did it. Solomon is doing it. In this particular book that we're studying. We come to grips with the fact that we are sinners. We make mistakes. We turn from God's perspective to our own sometimes. And it takes us down. Now's the time to return. To God's perspective. Especially in a time. Like we're living. Consider well the Apostle Peter himself who struggled. As the Lord Jesus lovingly confronts him in Luke chapter 22 and verses 31 and 32. Where the Lord tells Peter, Simon, Simon. Behold, Satan has desired to have you that he might sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Strengthen thy brethren. And so, the words, how precious they are, that Solomon is is preaching to us. Then he wants to make it clear that he is the son of David. Because his parentage adds weight to his instruction. He owed much to his father David for his godly and affectionate counsel. Just read the book of Proverbs. But how true the words of Solomon in Proverbs. Proverbs 22, verse 6, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And really, when it says train up a child, it says dedicate a child. The word chanak for train is the word for dedicate. Dedicate a child in the way that he should go. And we who are, who are to dedicate our children in the way that they should go must also be dedicated in doing that very same thing. So that when they are old, they will not depart from that training, from that dedication. So let God be honored in the practical exercise of faith. And his promise will be made good in his own fitting time. We as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are to be dedicated to the Lord for divine service. Both in present and future responsibilities. I say more than ever now that we need to consider how we are to be dedicated to the Lord for divine service in whatever way we possibly can. We haven't shut down what God has called us to do. Yeah, we've had to kind of become so somewhat creative in how we do it. Of course, all churches pretty much for the, for the most part are doing this. But our heart is to fulfill the ministry God has given us. So we continue then to teach and to preach the word of God. Through this means. The days that we're living in now certainly demand that kind of dedication to the Lord and to, and to one another. And each and every one of us, those of you that are, pay, that are, that are listening and, and, and paying attention to the, the message and the word today. Each and every one of us has certain means where we can reach out to people. I just said simply last night, and I'll say it again today. That uh, each and every one of us has, has some, some way of, of texting or or emailing, or even calling someone 
to see how they're doing, reaching out and having fellowship in a way that, uh, that just encourages one another. We all can do that. I mean, we, we even we as pastors, you know, have been trying to do that as many, with as many people as we can, but we can't do it all by ourselves. You know, we, we equip you with the word of God so that, you know, being equipped, you can do the work of the ministry. Ephesians chapter 4. So in, in times like today, we all have that calling to take and, and, and use the word of God for the encouragement of, of others. I was encouraged when I was looking on Facebook not too long ago and people are having these watch parties for, and, and, and some of you are having your party right now. Well, praise the Lord. Be rejoicing in, in that. But these, these are ways of bringing us together and fulfilling the service that God has given to us, both in present and future responsibilities. We don't know yet what tomorrow has to bring, but we know the one who knows it. We know the one who is already able to present to us what we can do to encourage the hearts of our friends, our families, in the Lord, and to do the same in encouraging those who don't know Jesus and to, and to let them know that there is hope in Christ. So the days that we're living in now demand that kind of dedication to the Lord and to one another. And then Solomon calls himself the king in Jerusalem. Identifies himself so people will know who it is. So this would be where Solomon learned his greatest lessons. He was the king in Jerusalem who, because of his wealth and wisdom and worldly concern, had ample opportunity to sample all of life and experience things both good and bad. And to all levels and extremes. To express the observations and convictions that he does in this book based on all of those experiences, both good and bad. This is the reason why he talks about what things are like under heaven. That phrase, we'll talk about it later, but that phrase under heaven means everything that happens on this earth. And he would want us to understand that there is something above heaven, above the heaven that we can see and and probably experience, but into the kingdom of God. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 5 through 7, He said, for we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. And ourselves, your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We have a treasure in earthen vessels. We are the earthen vessels. We are the ones made of flesh. Follow that back to the very beginning and you realize that we come out of the very dust of the ground. We are earthen vessels. Human vessels. Finite vessels in that particular respect. But we have a treasure. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We have that treasure in these earthen vessels. So that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. It is the excellency of the power that is of God. Through us. We're not. The power. He's the power. And the excellency of that power is of God. God using us. I'm always very weary of. uh, And leery of the. People who make themselves more than they ought to be. We we are earthen vessels. We're, We're human. I've oftentimes said that earthen vessels are cracked pots. 
And because we're cracked pots, we kind of leak. That is the reason why every day we need to ask for the infilling and indwelling of the Holy Spirit and, you know, that God would overflow us with his spirit. Overflow us each and every day. So that the excellency of the power of the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ may be of God and not of us. Yes, Solomon was king in Jerusalem. But as we've already noted and as we will hear from him directly throughout all of what he is preaching in this particular book, he proves himself to be that earthen vessel as well. So his first great message to the assembly is in verse 2 of Ecclesiastes 1. Vanity of vanities saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Make note that he repeats this, this phrase. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. You see, the original meaning of the word vanity would be a thing, <coughs> excuse me, a thing insufficient and worthless that soon vanishes away like a vapor or a bubble. It shows that a man cannot find in the world that which he aims at. The whole world with all the pleasures and profits and honors and endeavors and business and events that are under the sun are only empty and uncertain without God. There's a whole world without God today. A huge, huge percentage of people on this world, people that were created in the image of God, people that were made just like you and me, but they're without God in this world. Yet they live in vanity, insufficiency, worthlessness. The Lord hath made had made everything good. Read Genesis chapter one. And every day of creation, God said, and the Lord made everything good. But when sin was introduced into the world, it marred everything that was made by him. And so the creature was made subject to vanity. The creature was made subject to insufficiency and worthlessness and emptiness. Paul gives us a little bit of a picture in that in Romans chapter 1 verses 20 to 23. Now, I would encourage you to read all of Romans chapter 1, especially 20 down to the end. And you will see a good description of what the world is like today. But I give you these verses here, verses 20 through 23, to see how the creature has been subject to vanity. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Even his eternal power in God is so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, They glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain. There's the word vain. That's connected to vanity. But became vain in their imaginations. Now, in a modern sense, the word vain, let me just add this. The word vain is is to say, you know, somebody that that is is, is very self-promoting, self, you know, aggrandizing, whatever. But I mean, self-gratifying. It's all about self, you know. It's like the old song back, I don't know, late 60s, early 70s. You're so vain, you probably think this song is about you, you know. I mean, that kind of thinking about yourself. Vain. Yet when you do that, in God's creation, you're showing yourself to be insufficient and worthless and empty. 
So when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened, professing themselves to be wise because of vanity. They became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, into birds, into four-footed, four-footed beasts and creeping things. It's the reason why man has, has, has adopted this, uh, this evolutionary way of thinking. That man wasn't created to be above all of creation because he was created in the image of God. No, man just kind of came out from you know, the mud that was created billions of years ago and, and came through some kind of evolutionary process which makes us worthless, which by, you know, when you add it all up, makes us insufficient, <laughs> and it makes us pretty empty. Later on in Romans chapter 8, Paul would kind of define this understanding of, of being a subject to van- vanity, but also with hope. When he says in verse 20 of Romans chapter 8, he says, for the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So we were made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. But there would be hope given. As it was given to us in Genesis chapter 3, after the fall of man, after the sin that man committed. And God made a way. God will always make a way. And he made a way by sending his only begotten son. Who said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Let's face this reality if we've never faced it before. And the reality is, life without God is full of emptiness. Life without God is completely vanity. Is life really worth living? We asked that question earlier. Is life really worth living? It is. It is when Christ Jesus rules and reigns in our hearts by faith. Life really is worth living when Jesus is ruling and reigning in us. Is life really worth living? Yes, it is. When he and he alone receives all the praise for all that is good, for all that is pure, for all that is holy, for all that is just and all that is true. Life is worth living. When we give him all the glory and all the honor. Because in doing so, he continues to bless us. Continues to meet our needs. Continues to strengthen us in our weakness. Is life worth living? It is when we've died to ourselves. And let Jesus Christ live. In us. What a great statement that Paul has made in Galatians chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. Of course, verse 20 has become one of my favorite verses of all, where Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Paul is saying, To be crucified with Christ is to say, I surrender to, to dying. I'm crucified means I'm dead. 
with Christ. That means he identifies with the death of Jesus Christ as a death for him. Jesus died for Paul as he died for you and for me. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Oh, so undeserved is that blessing. So undeserved is that love. So undeserved is that gift. Yet how real it was to Paul to say the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me. He would not even put himself and say my my faith. He says the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the, the grace of God, Paul said. For if righteousness, righteousness cometh by, or come by the law, notice this, then Christ is dead in vain. Consider those last two words. In vain. We have to consider these questions as we prepare to close this study today. Was the death of Jesus Christ insufficient for us? Was the death of Jesus Christ insufficient? By no means was it insufficient. It is the only sufficiency that there is. Jesus Christ is our sufficiency in everything. Not just in his dying and shedding his blood and, 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 and rising again from the dead. But being our strength today, his words are strength, his life our strength, his spirit in us our strength. Was the death of Jesus Christ insufficient? By no means. Was his death for us worthless? By no means was it worthless. It is worth eternity for us. Was Jesus' death on the cross on our behalf empty and without substance? By no means. I should say not. His death on our behalf on the cross is our substance. Jesus, our sufficiency. Jesus, our substance. Jesus, our sovereign ruler. Jesus, our sovereign king. Jesus, our supreme Lord. And Savior. We close with 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 through 58, to substantiate this understanding. So, when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, Paul said, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. Notice, thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have a victory that is worth everything to us. We have a victory that was sufficient to us because it was Jesus who died on the cross for us. We have a victory through our Lord Jesus Christ over sin and death and hell and the enemy. And so Paul closes that chapter by saying, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast. Be steadfast today. Be unmovable today. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. That's the norm. That's the normal for the Christian life. That is the normal Christian life. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. 
Not going back to the normal that is connected in many ways to what we did in the world. Or taking for granted the things that the Lord had done for us. No. Be steadfast. Unmovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Your labor is not insufficient in the Lord. Your labor is not worthless in the Lord. Your labor is not empty in the Lord. Amen.